Hello and welcome to this episode of Influx, a podcast hosted by the Center for Internet and Society, where we discuss technology, policy, politics, and so much more. I am Torsha, and today I am joined by my co-host Pranav. Hi everyone. Today we are interviewing Arindrishit Basu. He has recently written in the Lawfare blog about how India should frame its global cyber policy in the coming years. So, Arindrajit, uh, would you like to give us a brief introduction to what your paper is about? Sure. Um. So, first of all, the Lawfare blog that I wrote was actually a amalgamation of a lot of different research outputs that uh, researchers at CIS, Torsha, and you included had had taken undertaken over the past. Uh, I mean, two or three years at least. And my basic point was to frame it in terms of what this really means for India's global cyber policy vision, is what I call it. Because India, as you know, is the um, largest democracy in the world, and it has unique economic and demographic leverage to really shape how the internet and various emerging technologies will be governed in the coming years. So really, it was about taking a number of different key tech policy issues, but also taking a number of uh, key outputs that. I have written in the past year, and also others at CIS have written, and then sort of trying to situate that in terms of what this means for India's multilateral uh, stance. As I understand, your piece deals with uh, some uh, deals with several tech policy issues. The first of them being something that has gotten quite a bit of attention recently, which is data localization. So, how do you think data localization will affect India in the coming days? Yeah, uh, thanks. I, you're absolutely right. I think data localization is the foreign policy and technology issue that not just India but a number of other countries are grappling with. So before I answer that question directly, let me give a little bit more context on what really happened on data localization. So the first data localization mandate, as you would know, was the RBI Payments Directive that said that all payments data must be stored within India, and that came about in April 2018. And then after that, there were a slew of policies, uh, including the insurance guidelines, including the pharmaceutical guidelines. Guidelines that said that uh, data be, uh, belonging to Indian citizens must be stored within India. Then the big sort of development was in August 2018. Of course, the draft personal data protection bill, the earlier version that was submitted by the Shri Krishna committee, which basically said that um, sensitive personal data, which is defined in the bill, and uh, critical data, which the central government can notify, must be stored uh, within India. Uh, and processed within India, whereas any all other personal data must have a live serving copy stored within India, even if um, there is a copy that's stored abroad in the US. So that was the provision in the 2018 bill, and the accompanying report had a number of reasons justifying uh, this this uh, this mandate, which was in some ways you could call it protectionist. But the two important reasons justifying it are actually core elements of India's sort of strategic vision. The first one is law enforcement access to data. And this sounds something that's very fancy and obscure, but it's actually very important. The simple question is that if an Indian citizen commits a crime, the victim is an Indian citizen, the crime is committed in Bombay, but the data data is stored on some server in Delaware or somewhere in the US. And therefore, when the Indian cop, again, based in Bombay, is trying to access that piece of data, they have to comply with the Electronic Communications Privacy Act and a large number of US laws. And at present, it's governed by a process called the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty process, where it takes anywhere between 
eight to 12 months to actually get get that data. And that, that was research that uh, we uh, researchers at CIS, including myself, had previously done. So Bhav Ambar, Elena and myself, uh, I think at that time, well, well before I'd actually, uh, the research started well before I even joined. So that's obviously an unfair situation. And data localization was touted as, a, as something that would solve this problem. But really the, the, the mirroring doesn't really solve the problem because the USA can still say that they have jurisdiction over that data and refuse to give it, right? Because it's still, a copy is still stored in the US. So it's basically a conflict of law situation. Uh, I think I remember when I was explaining this to you about a year back, you said that to avoid a conflict of law situation, they basically created another conflict of law situation <laughs> by uh, just with, with the added burden of uh, creating infrastructure. So that there are various other solutions, which uh, another paper that I've done on data localization actually tried to propose. So for this specific issue, there is something called the Cloud Act, by, by virtue of which the US can enter into executive data sharing agreements with a number of countries. And India is not one of the countries with which the US has had an executive data sharing agreement because our surveillance law, as, as uh, you, Pranav, and others at CIS have covered, are not up to uh, the mark. So Section 69 allows for, of the IT Act allows for uh, surveillance without judicial sort of intervention. Uh, uh, the draft data protection bill doesn't really make matters uh, any any better. The and definitely the revised version uh, doesn't have particularly strong surveillance provisions either. So instead of really focusing on uh, this sort of uh, heavy-handed measure that will impact India negatively in terms of trade and economic relationships, it's much better to try and get ensure that we are on the cloud act by reforming our laws in favor of civil liberties. So that's that's the first sort of major reason that I think is important and needs discussion. The second reason is again, I think part should be part of India's grander cyber policy vision. That's something I've written in the lawfare piece as well, which says that we should not to either the US line or the sort of China line on how the internet is to be governed. So if you assume that the US is absolutely free flow, uh, no restrictions whatsoever, no government intervention, and all companies are allowed to monetize citizen data for their own benefit. That's the US vision of laissez-faire, free and uh, supposedly fair trade. And then you have China that uh, sometimes is regarded as an authoritarian model where they clamp down on civil liberties through uh, regular internet shutdowns and uh, censorship and things like that. Um, and India really has an opportunity or although we are not necessarily clinching it to differentiate ourselves by saying that we will not be a product of the US company driven model of data colonialism that Indian citizens data will actually be used for Indian citizens development and therefore uh, we, we must uh, ensure that India's policy ecosystem is in line with that. Data localization was supposedly a means of ensuring that India's citizens' data is used for India's development because then they can access the data. But again, there are other ways of ensuring that Indian citizens' data is fairly uh, regulated. There are economic costs to data localization and that of course will be felt by Indian citizens as well. And uh, while we do reclaim this data for development narrative and sort of forge this uh, what Parminder Jeet Singh calls a digital non-alignment, which is important. It's also important to know that this stance is not independent of politics. So after the initial data localization mandate was placed in the 2018 Shri Krishna bill, um, a number of companies really lobbied, Western companies really lobbied hard to ensure the localization provision was removed. Indian big companies like Reliance, PhonePay, Paytm also lobbied hard to ensure that data localization provision was not removed. And it basically became a competition between Facebook and Reliance to who can lobby harder and uh, have their say. It turns out that the final provision that came out in the recent 2019 December 
a version of the bill was sort of a compromise where the mirroring provision was removed because for the most part they didn't make any sense but sensitive personal data as defined in the bill and critical data do need to be for the most part unless there is unless certain exceptions are made do need to be stored and uh, processed within india so that that is some sort of a compromise and this politicization is not unique to india of course i have written a, another piece for the diplomat that looks at how a similar trajectory evolved in indonesia and vietnam as well because again those are big economies that are important for these uh, companies and you know people in these public policy teams uh, constantly make trip to trips to delhi jakarta uh, and uh, vietnam to ensure that uh, the policy making is along their uh, strategic economic interests wow that was a very detailed answer uh, in addition to what the bill has provided what do you think would be good uh, what do you think would be good ways of accommodating all the different concerns around data localization into a regulatory framework i think the answer to that lies in what i said up top and what i was saying now as well that india needs to be sort of craft its own digital vision that is not a slave of data colonialism but is neither something that's authoritarian or against the principle of free and fair trade so a solution would be something like like a middle ground would be to ensure that the strategic objectives are met by the various methods outlined so for example in terms of law enforcement access trying to get under the cloud act in terms of um the fact that these companies adopt unfair economic practices to rely on uh, competition law to regulate them or tax them heavily right that's of course independent of data localization but in terms of like what should the ideal data localization mandate be it is to ensure that india retains as much strategic autonomy as possible and i think through this sort of provision of critical data even though the parameters have not yet uh, been defined um india does retain that little bit of uh, room for maneuver in terms of deciding what data should be stored within indian borders so one type of data that should be critical probably is defense data so even the us has a rule that mandates that uh, any contractor with the department of defense should uh, store their data within uh, the united states so like i think these sort of provisions by ensuring that you take a sector by sector and data specific approach as opposed to taking a carte blanche approach would be uh, my solution and also not using data localization as a catch all solution for all problems where other solutions may uh, may exist so uh, another thing that your blog post deals with and that kind of caught my attention was the area of intermediate liability which uh, if if for the benefit of listeners i have been working on for a for i think a year now almost and uh, i think on top of my head, the first question that came to me is how do you link the issue of intermediary liability with data localization so if we could uh, yeah, give yeah. your thoughts on that yeah so as i mentioned the uh, post was a crude amalgamation of a lot of research that's been done at cis including by yourself over the past year but i think as i said they all fit into this broader narrative of india crafting a cyber policy vision that does not let big tech get away with whatever they want to do okay. while respecting our unique constitutional ethos and also protecting us from the state from the state india is really trying to create this independent uh, autonomous vision but while the vision exists in terms of regulating big tech and ensuring that uh, they don't get away because we have the economic and demographic power to do so the clear problem is much like with data localization the devil lies as you very well know in the details of intermediary liability right? right and of course you've written a fair bit about what the 
like problems are with intermediate liability itself specifically right right yeah so uh, just for a little bit of context the ministry of electronics and information technology proposed changes to our current intermediate liability law in december 2018 and while some of the requirements were similar to what we already had one thing that kind of stirred a lot of criticism in a lot of literature was this introduction of a proactive filtering mandate where the intermediaries were supposedly supposed to use machine learning tools to filter out unlawful content which raises a host of concerns yeah yeah just not just technological feasibility but also economic concerns and free speech issues but a number of other countries have taken this approach as well right like the nets I, i remember researching with the article and i saw the nets dg in germany is an example that doesn't mandate the use of technology but um it does take a more interventionist approach so what do you i mean what do you think is specifically wrong with india uh, taking taking this approach for me i think the answer would lie in just technological determinism which is i think a problem with the government where you have any societal or policy issue and you think that technological solution is the sort of answer without really going going into it right and right. in fact the niti ayog the national strategy for ai which is relevant here because uh, we are talking about automated filtering they said that we should take an ai plus x approach to everything which means that x is the sort of gap between existing processes and our ability to solve them and you add ai to it after you remedy what the gap is but from what you're saying and from the writing of both you and the uh, intermediate liability team at cis it seems that they haven't really identified the gap properly or been able to uh, really impose an appropriate solution and i think the, the foreign policy is of course at a higher higher level but to get foreign policy right you need to get domestic policy right right i think yeah. that's what my my major concern is there are two things one that i think at this point and this is probably a personal opinion i think some big tech ought to be regulated right, right? so the sanjay agri case for example is essentially a call for twitter to do better in terms of the way it enforces twitter standards but on the other hand uh, imposing this sort of a technology without taking into account the numerous counts of research that exists yeah. which point out how this is this may not be the best way of reading the internet of unlawful speech i think that's where the majority of concern of the intermediate liability team stems from yeah yeah so i think the sort of mantra should be regulate but regulate them right and then i guess yes. if you look into my article regulate regulate them right and ensure that the entire world listens to our regulation right which is where we become a sort of leader for the world so that's i think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of ensuring that we don't let big tech get away but uh, we use regulations that actually listen to scholarly research and the voices of multiple activists right exactly so speaking of regulating things correctly uh what do, what what would you have to say about the idea of community data being collected and utilized with a promise of utilizing it for public good yeah that, that's that's uh, that's a great question that's also something i cover in the article and i think that is one of the more fundamental questions in tech policy right like in tech policy you have to answer the question what is data and i don't think we have an answer to that yet i don't think any any country really has an answer to that yet so um uh, some people look at data uh, so idp the internet democracy project does a lot of good work looking at data as as bodies for example where it's something that's intrinsic intrinsically connected to the person whereas the government looks at it slightly differently and that's in line with its broader vision of ensuring that data is used for development and data is used for economic welfare and not colonized by a number of uh, limited number of big tech companies 
and therefore two policies and you sort of referred to the vocabulary of both the policies in your question one is uh, community data which appears in the e-commerce policy which basically says that that indian community owns each other's data so i own your data you own my data you have a right to benefit from my data and vice versa and the analogy they take is from uh, sort of much smaller communities aboriginal communities in uh, other in canada for example so i'm not sure really where the analogy is coming from but really this idea that your personal data or your person or your body is less important than the community's right to benefit from it i didn't really understand and also how it just works practically right so that's the first uh, community data conception the other problematic conception which you also mentioned was data as a public good which comes in the chapter 4 of the economic survey and basically there uh, it's argued that data is a public good but then in the end of the chapter it says that corporations can bid for the data but that basically defies econ 101 right where a public good is by definition non rivalrous and non exclusive uh, and and non excludable so um you can't uh, you can't conceptualize data as a public good and then suddenly say that corporations will bid for it but the other problem with data as a public good is what is public good is it does it include personal data as well and i think the bill as you would have been following the data protection bill in section 91 equates anonymized personal data with non personal data and doesn't really define what non personal data is so does that mean that if my income tax records are kept in anonymized format that that is the same as traffic signal data or pollution data because i have as the data as bodies approach tries to see i have some inherent right over uh, data that is uh, that is personal and comes from me but uh, i don't uh have that same right over traffic signal data or pollution data and i think that the regime needs to be uh, thought more carefully but again the same mantra that torshan had discussed comes about because you need to regulate them you can't live in status quo where data continuously monetizes by monetized by the googles and facebooks but again regulate them right right i don't think that either of these two questions actually have a concrete uh, provide a concrete answer although there is a committee that's been set up by the ministry of electronics and information technology the non personal data committee that's uh, supposedly going to come out with a report and answer all these questions so i hope that that report is great and once that report comes out and if the content and the way it's adopted in india is actually fair and actually enables a genuine balancing not a mere sort of legal balancing of privacy and and development then really we can set uh tone for the rest of the world and really be a world leader something we have been in various other multilateral issues in the past as well and that's really my my hope uh so it's interesting that you bring that up and you've also written about this in the article so what do you think india can do better when it's currently representing its interests in the global forum yeah that's again uh, an excellent and challenging question as well right because then in some cases we have to look back to what india did right when it was negotiating in other global fora you know so there is this of course i hadn't read this book when i wrote the piece but a book that uh, i i read recently called does india negotiate by kartik nachiappan that looks at really what what the core interests the institutions and the interest groups that converged around a specific multilateral issue for india to really take the lead in that matter so in that book uh, kartik looks at uh, tobacco control looks at uh, the nuclear a race uh, uh, the the comprehensive test ban treaty looks at the climate change uh, deals and and uh, and of course and of course trade as well and in in all of these things the defining moment was that at the end of the day someone from some department because of 
the interests and various interests and institutions actually stood up at some multilateral forum and said something unique or actually lobbied hard to get something unique passed, whether it was tobacco control framework or it was uh, just the fact that India will not uh, be a part of the CTBT because that was inherently unfair. It was something was pointed out and this comes from a foreign policy culture that started with Nehru where we were the champions of uh, decolonization in the, in the 1950s and 60s and were really the leaders of the non-aligned movement which sought to move away from exploitation by the West and we set the stage for a new economic order, right? And uh, we have done this in the past, but in multilateral forums on cyber, our focus has been relatively uh, benign. So we've, of course, done the hard work at home by trying to talk up data localization and ensure that data localization becomes established abroad. But really to be a multilateral norm setter, we haven't really gone out there, done our homework and said, exported these unique things that are happening at home and of course as i as we discussed before we need to do our homework even better but we've not really exported this uh, abroad particularly effectively so at multilateral fora as of now the debate is skewed between the us wanting one kind of internet free flowing no government restriction uh, as i mentioned before and china wanting another kind and really uh, india's sort of unique model has not been really pushed forward at any uh, global cyber forum and that is because of a number of reasons one of course because of the fact that of the way in which our uh, bureaucracy functions right where you may have one very knowledgeable person very enthusiastic person pursuing say a certain agenda at a, at a global governance forum and then once that person gets transferred it may be someone else because we believe in genderless it may be someone else who has little or no idea of what's actually going on right so whereas in other countries once you get a cyber portfolio you might have that portfolio for the entirety of your career so we have advantages of course of being genderless but uh, i think the solution to that is not necessarily uprooting the structure we have today but really ensuring that the government works with academia and, and policy and think tanks to ensure that their strategy is something that reflects good, sound and, uh, you know, in some ways, revolutionary policy making. So without really going into the details of what these forums are, and I've discussed this in, in some detail in the article, and in we've been writing about the UN process and the multilateral process in some detail as well. My simple takeaway would be that once we get the regulation right, it is then up to the specific domestic policymakers, whether it is Métis or whether it is another uh, department, to then work with the MEA to go abroad and lead the negotiations. Because we have, as I keep on mentioning, unique economic and demographic uh, leverage. And really that allows us to sort of set ourselves apart. In a day and age when we are fighting for something like, say, Permanent Security Council representation, this soft power angle matters. And as all of us know, because we're working in tech, tech is really the sort of the new final frontier, if you like, both at the domestic level and at the at the global level. So something that mixes our unique constitutional ethos that prioritizes civil liberties while not compromising on economic welfare and also imbibes our rich foreign policy heritage of ensuring that we are not prey to any form of colonization uh, has to really be something that, I mean, not just global governance thinkers, but also tech policy researchers and uh, government officials are thinking about. Thank you for this, Arindrajit. Uh, all of these issues are things we should be thinking about a lot more, and I'm glad we had this discussion. Listeners can find links to 
ऑल द डॉक्यूमेंट्स रेफरेंस्ड इन दिस एपिसोड इन द डिस्क्रिप्शन ऑफ द एपिसोड थैंक यू अगेन अरिंद्रजीत फॉर बीइंग हियर टुडे एंड थैंक्स फॉर ऑल द एक्सीलेंट क्वेश्चंस एंड एज ऑलवेज थैंक यू टू आवर लिसनर्स फॉर ट्यूनिंग इन टू येट अनदर एपिसोड प्लीज रिमेंबर टू लाइक एंड फॉलो अस ऑन ट्विटर एंड इंस्टाग्राम फॉर मोर एक्साइटिंग न्यूज़ ऑन द काइंड ऑफ वर्क वी आर डूइंग एंड मोर एक्साइटिंग न्यूज़ ऑन टेक पॉलिसी थैंक यू This episode was produced by the folks at the Center for Internet and Society. Intro music Fish Attack by Alpha Hydrate. Outro music Palette de Will by Quickweed.